Glad to be back with you guys today and eager to spend time in the Word together. Give my greetings from Trinity down the road and uh, trust that the Lord uses the message this morning helpfully in your lives. It's always interesting coming to a group that's uh, not as familiar, not knowing the, the things going on in, in life and how, how things will land on you and, and, and where that's helpful. But I know the Word of God is uh, what we need. That's what we need today. And so um, I want to say right from the beginning that uh, this message, which, uh, which I've titled Get Rich Quick, is, uh, is not a self-help guide to increase your wealth rapidly, as you might imagine, um, but it's a plea to heed the warnings of Jesus to not amass for yourselves temporary wealth as your goal, but rather to get rich toward God quickly before it's too late. So, please understand, as I preach this to you, I'm preaching this to myself, too. This is, this is the kind of warning we, we need to hear. Jesus has a lot to say about our lives and our money, and, and, and we need it to speak to us and, and hear it. I don't know any of you well enough to speak to you about your specific money habits, but I can speak to you as a fellow follower of Christ who knows the power and the allure and the idolatry of the love of money and its promises, empty as they are. And I can speak to you as one who knows the backside of the love of money, namely the anxiety that comes when wealth doesn't. And um, so I believe we'll benefit from these serious words of Jesus today. We'll be mainly looking at uh, Matthew 6 and then a little bit of help from Luke 12. So I want to pray first and then we'll, uh, and then we'll look into the Word of God. So pray with me. Father, we're thankful for your Word that reveals and exposes us before you, that leads us to repentance because of your great mercy that you meet us with in Christ. Father, we thank you as we come to the word today that we, we come from the gospel to this text, having been brought from death to life and having been given a new kind of love and a new kind of power to grow and to change that we've never possessed before. And we praise you that that's true. We thank you for Christ and all that, uh, all that you are for us in Christ, for your great and precious promises and for these words today. Father, you know how prone our hearts are to wander, uh, to, to, to wander and to crave and to long for low things and fill our lives with things and stuff. And I pray that you 
rescue us from that with a greater, clearer view of your majesty and your greatness. So help us as we meet today. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you realize that Jesus gave more warnings about money than any other topic that he spoke of? Craig Blomberg, author of Neither Poverty Nor Riches, a biblical theology of material possessions, makes a stunning and I believe very truthful claim. He says, it's arguable that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today, including many in the visible church. In this sense, materialism or the pursuit of wealth or the desire for wealth or the pleasures and comforts that money offers is a great danger to our souls. It's a very great danger. So in Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus calls wealth or money a master. And that's powerful language, don't you think? In fact, Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and in Luke 12 are actually far more stunning than Blomberg's quote. Jesus' teaching on the subject, as we'll see, is essentially this. Whoever pursues wealth now will not have any wealth in the life to come. Man, let that sink in. I don't think it's overstated. Whoever pursues wealth now will not have any wealth in the life to come. And he isn't warning you that you're in danger of being the poorest person in heaven. He's warning you that you will not inherit heaven at all if wealth and stuff is your treasure. This is a worship problem for us, an idolatry that keeps you from heaven. But he who's generous now will be rich in heaven. That's the other side of Jesus' message here. You see, wealth is the biggest competitor to authentic Christianity in our culture today. And you don't have to possess very much of it for your heart to be in danger. That's the thing. So don't write this message off if you don't have a high-paying job or because you consider yourself more poor than rich or because you think, well, it's the love of money that's the problem. And I don't think I really love it. We need to maybe check our hearts a little bit on that. So this is a serious subject, and it has to do with what you love, what you worship, and where your soul finds joy now, and where it longs for joy in eternity. The issue is not mainly how much money you make 
or how much money you've saved. It has everything to do with what you do with your money and why. So our primary text will be from Matthew 6, 19 to 24, although we're going to take a pretty wide view in chapter 6. And then we're going to lean on Luke 12, especially verses 13 through 34, for a little help with the interpretation um, of Matthew 6. So Jesus' point in both passages is clear. He commands his followers to get rich quick. And that is, he calls kingdom citizens to get rich toward God. That's Luke 12, 21. Rich toward God. And to repent of the pursuit of wealth for the comfort of your soul, which is idolatry. So we'll look at three key points from Matthew 6 here. Uh, first, I want to look at the pattern that emerges in those first 18 verses that brings us right into our text in 19 to 24. And then I want to look at the three propositions that are in verses 19 to 24 and then finish with the promise of verse 33. So first consider with me the pattern of chapter 6 in the preceding 18 verses. Jesus is teaching a great crowd in a message that we now call the Sermon on the Mount. We're familiar with it. In 18 verses, Jesus will deal with a Christian's conduct in areas of giving, in prayer, in fasting. But we see right in verses 1 through 4, the first section there, a pattern emerges, and Jesus uses it for each one of those. He, he takes the, the topic, and he runs it through this, this pattern. So Matthew 6, 1 if you're not in Matthew, you may want to turn there for most of our time this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you're practicing, if you practice giving as a display for others, then you'll have no reward from God. The only reward you see will be their praise. But if you give in secret, then your Father will reward you. So don't do this and get this earthly result, but do this and get this heavenly result. That's the structural pattern here. That's what we see as he goes to fasting, as he goes to prayer. It's the same idea. Don't do this low thing and get this low result. Do this thing and get this God-given result. Well, the pattern is profound. Uh, there's an underlying truth. It's basically the giver or the prayer or the faster must believe that God 
and his promises are so much greater than all the treasures that he can amass for himself from other means that he banks all of his hope on him. That's, that's what's behind that pattern that we see here. So look how it happens again in verses 5 to 15 on the topic of prayer. And all of this to get us to our text so we can see how that fits in. Do not pray for the earthly reward. And I'm, I'm going to kind of just, rather than, because there's a lot of text here, and I, and I realize we have some limitation on our time together. So you put your eyes on the text there, 5 to 15. I'm going to give you the basic idea here rather than read through that. Essentially, we're saying, do not pray for the earthly reward of the praise of men, but pray for a lasting permanent heavenly reward. Undergirding this is the same implied revelation that God is of greater worth and gives greater rewards than any temporary reward you can secure through your self-exalting display before men. After all, prayer is only dependence on God for everything. not self-reliance. And that's how God's exalted, by depending, by trusting in the greatness of God to act. That's, so God's exalted in our praying by our neediness, by our dependence upon Him. And it resonates that same idea that God and His promises are much greater treasure than all you could amass for yourself by other means. And we see the same thing with fasting here. Don't fast like this for an earthly reward, fixing yourself to look uh, miserable, but in secret for a heavenly reward. All three are parallel. They all capture the same idea. You hear that? The, the reward of God is of infinitely greater importance than any earthly temporary reward we can get for ourselves by using those by using those means to uh, gain something here it's the difference between worthless and priceless in this pattern so this is actually very similar to Hebrews 11 Verses 25 to 26, which shows Moses responding in faith when faced with an opportunity to receive all possible earthly blessings. Here he is, this, this uh, one in a very privileged position as a, as a uh, now family member of, of, uh, of the greatness in Egypt and we see in verse 25 that Moses choosing to be mistreated with the people of God, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He's able to see that the immediate temporary rewards of Egypt now is nothing in comparison to a different reward 
that he sees. And the reward he sees in God, God himself, is so great that he can prefer being mistreated with the people of Israel during that period of slavery in Egypt than to prefer instant gratification now. He sees a greater reward in front of him. So the pattern is a pattern of faith in greater promises, greater treasure. This means that these verses are much more than commands from Jesus. They are commands, but we don't want to miss that lest we think that Jesus is just picky about rules. Now, when you pray, I just want it to be like this because that's the way I like it. He's not picky about rules here. There's, there's more going on. This is a matter of faith in God's faithfulness, faith in God's greatness, God's provision for you. Okay, so, so why does that matter for our topic when we get to verse 19? Most of your Bibles probably separate 19 into a, a next little section or paragraph. Um, and Jesus makes something of a transition in, in verse 19 in order to discuss wealth. And at first it seems like he drops the pattern that he ran the first three topics through but the principle appears to be virtually the same here. It's not running through that structure, but, but we're getting the same lesson coming out of it. Do not pursue the temporary reward that wealth offers us, that money offers us, that things, that's what we get with money, offer us. But seek after the lasting reward. So the pattern of the first 18 verses really applies perfectly to our subject of wealth and possessions. Whatever Jesus is about to teach here or command, it's mainly a command to find Jesus as chief of all treasures. And that's something we need to put in front of our face over and over again. So you might want to thinking at this point, well, who would go after the lesser when they could receive the greater? Isn't, isn't that just obvious? Right? We do that with our fast food apps all the time. We pick the better deal, get the more for the whatever, but that distinction is at the heart of every sinful thought or action that we ever perform, isn't it? That, that's really what's at stake there. And so while it sounds so obvious to us when we're thinking wisely about things, this is the very thing that we reject when we're confronted with temptation and move into sin. Think, just think about Romans 1, the way it frames that in. Verse 20, God's made His glory known to man and it's plain to see. And it's wonderful, it's right, it's good. His creation testifies to the existence of God and His character before us. But verse 25 states that they worshiped and served the creature, the created things, rather than the Creator 
who is blessed forever. So we see that sin is any belief, any feeling, any desire, any action that comes from a heart that does not worship and value God over all things. We do it all the time. What an obvious truth on one hand, and oh, how we trade real value for lesser things all the time. You, you see that about your heart? That's, that's what sin leads us to. Every time we prefer sin, we are preferring lesser in, in, in rejecting what's greater. We're, we're prone to it. So it turns out that Jesus is driving home a deeply profound and needed truth. God is to be valued and sought over all competing treasures. That truth is already standing there greeting us when we come into our text here in verses 19 to 24. It's, it's already got us thinking in that frame. God is to be valued and sought over all competing treasures. So if you're not already there, we can go there. Verses 19 to 24. Jesus has three main points from these uh, five verses and I'll spend most of our time on the first point. So, Matthew 19 uh, to 21, let me just read that. Um, here, 19 to 24, I'll read the whole thing now and we'll be referring back to it. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where Thieves, do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this first unit here in verses 19 to 21, I want to take that but kind of work through it backwards with you. Verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's really the point. When we see for, usually means that there's a, it's a statement of grounding truth or the basis for what's just been said. And that's, and, and that's uh, true here, but a ground can either be a cause, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, the reason something's true, or it can be evidence that shows you that it's true. So if this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, if that's read as a cause, it would sound like Jesus is saying, be careful what you do with your money because your heart will follow after your possessions. And if that were the case, you would get to heaven just by making good investments. If your heart's going to follow what you have, 
then you could set that up right away. But that's not how hearts work. Hearts lead, don't they? We do what we do because we want what we want, because we love what we love. Our hearts are leading the way here. So this isn't a causal basis for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. This is an evidential basis. It's showing us what's true. The proof or the evidence that your heart is treasuring one thing over another is seen in what you're laying up for yourselves. So Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what I'm laying up reveals my heart. It reveals what I'm loving. And, and that's why warnings like this from Jesus are, are sharp. And they, 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 they cut right to the reality, regardless of what I say with my mouth. Words like this reveal what I really love. Your pursuit, my pursuit, temporary comforts or long leisurely retirements or immediate security in this life is laid open before your own eyes and, and before God's. If you look at what you're laying up. So our hearts will be revealed by the evidence of what we're doing with the wealth or with the fantasies of wealth. You, you understand what I mean by that? If I don't have any, I'm not laying those things up in material possessions per se, but I'm not off the hook. I have in my heart a desire that I'm going after, I'm longing for. I don't, it hasn't materialized yet, but when it does, I can spend the rest of my life on the beach at Fiji, right? That, that's what I mean by that, my fantasies of wealth. I don't have to have it to be in trouble here. I just have to want it and know what I'll do with it. So, are you laying up or dreaming of laying up treasures on earth, or are you laying up or dreaming of laying up treasures in heaven? So this is where I think we need a little help we got to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says laying up treasures? Rather than just talk about this in, in the metaphor form that we have it in. And so we can go to Luke 12, verses 13 and following. It's helpful because in another similar teaching situation, Jesus uses the same phrase. So that, that helps add understanding to, to what's meant here here because we see him using it elsewhere and having, having a consistent idea and he uses pictures to help us make sense of it. So Luke 12, you may want to turn there, Luke 12 and verse 13, someone in the crowd, now this is kind of funny because it says there's thousands of people here and they're beginning to trample each other. There's a lot of people in the crowd and apparently at this massive teaching event, Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, 
Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So apparently a father's died, there's an inheritance, and there's a real disagreement about how this money should be divided up and who gets it. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Do I look like an estate lawyer? Right? But he said to him, uh, uh, and he said to him, or them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. So this parable is to explain, to illustrate what he's saying here. Tells them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, to be sure, Jesus does not show much concern about how this estate is divided up. Even though there might be some principles of humility and things he might teach, he doesn't show any, explain anything about that to them. All he does here is issue them a very serious warning. Jesus never addresses the brothers and their problem directly, but he speaks very clearly about their real problem. Beware of covetousness, the desire for more. And then he illustrates the warning. So think about that parable. This already rich man is, is the idea here. He's got a lot. He's got barns with all of his stuff stored up in the barns. He's got a lot. And he, now he yields a massive um, crop, I guess, from his agribusiness. That's a gift from God, by the way, when it yields a lot. What happens when you acquire massively more than you already have in your abundance? Well, very likely we just crave more and we desire more. And that's exactly what this man does here. This man doesn't want to lose anything that he's earned. And to illustrate that, Jesus tells the story. and He, he, he crafts this ridiculous plan. That this, that this man has. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build giant barns and then I can put everything. I can put my barns in my barns. I mean, he, this, this is madness to tear everything down and, and, and do this. And Jesus wants you to hear it that way. This is ridiculous. Why is he doing this? 
probably building his giant barns to house his stuff in, all the while whispering, mine, my own, my precious. Worse, we see the heart behind his motivation. He says, now I can spend the rest of my days relaxing and enjoying the lavish fruits of my labor. I got a free pass for the rest of my life. No more needs, no more work. Fiji all the way. God calls him a fool. But why does he say that? Isn't he living the American dream almost? Maybe that's even your basic plan. I'll work hard now and store up everything that I can possibly store up so that I can live like no one else. God says, you fool. You have misused the stewardship entrusted to you and now your life is up. Here's the point. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. That's you. That's me. If that's how we're approaching wealth, and remember, our approach to wealth is our approach to worship. It's, it's our heart approach the raising of temporary fortunes for yourself is in direct opposition to God's commands for His people. Let me be as clear as I can here. Making lots of money is not really the problem here. Saving lots of money is not really the problem here. Retiring from your career it's not really the problem here. But what is? What, what is the problem then? It's applying the wealth to myself in self-reliant abundance without regard for greater kingdom priorities. It lives as though everything I have came by my hand and belongs to me. It doesn't live like everything I have is a gift from God and I'm a steward of it. And that there's a greater reward than what I can get with it now. It forgets those things. That's the problem. Retiring to live a careless life, wanting to do this, and a leisure-based life, rather than to retire and cover your post career needs and self-fund your future retirement ministry of love and good works is a huge and revealing error. Remember, what you spend and save and dream about spending and saving reveals what you treasure. Does your financial planner tell you that? Jesus does not prohibit 401ks. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
He prohibits living like your wealth is yours to do with as you wish. If that wishing is not God-centered wishing. Being rich toward God is another way of saying storing up treasure in heaven. It certainly appears that Jesus is saying that the more we give away, use for kingdom priorities, caring for others, then the wealthier you'll be in the kingdom. I get that from Luke 12 here, 33 and 34. Jesus says, man, some of these things make us squirm. I almost want it to not be Jesus that said it and blame it on some radical teacher somewhere or something, right? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Where, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He wants us to spend and save in such a sacrificial way that you know that your financial security and your comfort, or or, let me say it this way, He wants us to spend and save in such a sacrificial way that you know that financial security and the comfort of stuff is not your God. Jesus is. You realize Christ has died to make us into that kind of people? Christ treasuring, Christ prizing above all things kind of people? That's what it is to come to Jesus. That's why Jesus can say, it's like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field What he found in Jesus was of greater worth than everything he had. So in the story, the man sells everything he has to buy that field. There's a greater treasure than anything that we can make for ourselves here and now. And Jesus is calling his people to live like that, live like Jesus is a treasure that is greater than what is a treasure here and now. And beware, because those here and now treasures are mirages. They don't last, but they may keep you from loving what's truly valuable. So summarize the point. When Jesus commands a certain kind of action, store up these treasures, not these, he's ultimately commanding a love for the greater worth of Christ over all competing loves. That's what's at stake here. I think that's why he talks about wealth so much. The accumulation of things is more of an indicator light than a steering wheel. So, picture my car anyway. I've got an indicator light always on telling me something's wrong with it. All right? Accumulating stuff doesn't make your heart idolatrous. Your heart desires to accumulate stuff or wealth to turn into stuff because it's already practicing idolatry. So the accumulation of stuff is the blinking light warning you that your heart's in danger. So that's the first point. The second Two, number two and three, very brief compared to that, okay? Second proposition in this says, the eye is the lamp of the body, 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this metaphor is a little confusing to us because eyes don't exactly function as light, at least in the way we think about it. Um, but I think we can still get the point here. Your eye, think that which beholds. That's another expression of the desire of the heart, really, isn't it? What my eye beholds. Um, it casts some kind of view, either light or dark. Eyes and coveting seem to go together a lot in Scripture. What your eye makes large, this is the this is the similar idea. What your eye makes large, what it zooms in on, your heart already loves. As you consider what your eye casts, you again realize the seriousness and the danger. This is a tremendous time to repent if that's what the Lord's bringing into your view. Man, look at your treasures. Look at what your eye's gaze is fixed upon. Turn away. Well, here, here's the thing. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, right? God has a remedy for coveting eyes, self-indulgent accumulation of stuff and godlessness. Turn away from trading the glory of God for a lie. When it becomes clear that your functional treasures are not the treasures of your mouth that you say they are, they're not the treasures of your heart, flee to Jesus for rescue. That's real hope. This isn't, Jesus isn't speaking words like this to us to beat on us. He's bringing us to Him. He's the one who takes selfish, self-oriented, low-things-loving hearts and turns them toward a greater love. He's the one that does that. Turn to Him. Number three, the third proposition, verse 24, it's very clear, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Now, we know you don't serve money like you might serve a master exactly. Money doesn't boss you around. Money doesn't tell you what to do. But Jesus calls it a master. It means it can master you. You employ yourself toward the pursuit of more and more of it at the expense of what He says actually matters. We can, we can pour our lives into something that Jesus is, oh man, wasn't even concerned about how that inheritance got divided up with those, with those two. saying there's something so much higher that concerns me here. Jesus says, life does not consist of your possessions. Life does not consist of your possessions. 
But man, does it look like it if we look at our lives? Does it seem like our life mainly is a story of our acquiring of possessions? Otherwise, Jesus could never say things like, whoever loses mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and houses and lands for my sake and the gospel, will he not receive a hundredfold with persecution mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and houses and lands in this life and in the life to come? He says, your life consists mainly of knowing him that's treasure. And that takes me to the final point here from this passage, the promise of verse 33. So when you read verses 25 to 32 in Matthew 6, you see Jesus drawing together a conclusion from what he's just taught. He says, therefore, that's why I'm calling it a conclusion, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? And I think Jesus is talking specifically about anxiety as the result of the pursuit of much wealth to store up for yourselves. It, what he says about anxiety has a general help to anxiety of all sorts, but I think he specifically has in view here the kind of anxiety that results from a life that pursues much wealth. I'm either because I must get more or because I can't get more. Like the unbelieving world, someone who makes it his all-consuming aim to acquire enough will have a life marked by fear and anxiety. Jesus calls that pursuit anxiety here, and he says it's not at all fitting for kingdom citizens. That's what the pagans do, he says. It's unbelief. Actually, it's trading the all-satisfying God who's able to take care of everything that he's made, even birds, and exchanging it for the lie that your only hope is $1.5 million in the bank by the time you're 68 years old. The kind of anxiety that Jesus is talking about here, at least partially, is the frenzied pursuit of enough of your own resources that you can take care of yourself and have absolutely no use or need for the provision of God that he speaks about in this chapter. This is why it's harder for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Harder like impossible. We make it our aim to have enough money that every need and want that I have can be met with what I've acquired for myself. I have found my treasure and it's not Jesus. So faith is coming to God, believing His promises are true and enough. Jesus makes no promise of material prosperity for Christians that I can think of. He doesn't 
doesn't promise us lots of prosperity for the Christian life. In fact, he's teaching a new way of approaching life and money here. It's a very Christian way. That's his, that's his point there. Not like pagans. Not like unbelievers. He's saying live in such a way that you do not seek the temporary reward of amassing earthly wealth for yourself, but seek the permanent heavenly reward through generosity. Now be careful. Generosity doesn't secure you the reward. This is not a message of as long as you give enough away, you'll be invited into heaven. It proves you already have the reward. Our generosity now with the wealth God entrusts to you now is the evidence that you found your treasure in Christ. This is a kind of countercultural Christian living that throws off the urge toward upgrade-itis. And by faith, it seeks an entirely different reward. This is the opposite of the anxiety of the frenzied hustle to store up more. Perhaps just hearing Jesus talk like this causes some anxiety as you wrestle with thoughts like, but what if I don't have enough? What if it runs out? Our hearts and idol factory churning up ways to need what we can get our hands on and care for ourselves so that God doesn't. But that's where the promise of verse 33 comes in for us. And it's familiar. Seek first the kingdom of God. That is, be rich toward God and store up treasures in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, the things you need, like food and clothing, will be added to you. Now Luke 12 32, delivers the same promise in another way. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your Father's giving you the kingdom. What do we need to make our life about here, the pursuit of everything I can get my hands on now? No. Don't fear. He's giving you the kingdom. There's greater reward. You have enough, and you will have enough. By faith, we need to become risk-takers who are after heavenly joy and seek to bring as many into that joy as God will grant. What I'm talking about is a bigger view of God, ultimately, that enthralls our heart. This is more a matter of faith in His promises than it is a mathematical equation for being sure you've got the right amount. Trust in these promises produces all kinds of new ways to use money that God's entrusted to you. Satisfying ways, I might add. I just read what is kind of a 
to me, kind of a gut-wrenching statistic that gets at the very problem among Christians, among our own 1%, 1% of all money that's given to missions is used for unreached people's missions. Now, that doesn't mean that good uses of money are not happening right, in other ways, but as, as Great Commission people, we should care a lot about completing the Great Commission, and, and 1% of all missions money is headed that direction, and it makes me think, there are better uses for my money than where some of it's going right now. There are, but, but not just simply for money's sake, right? For joy's sake, for my joy, for their joy, that the gospel becomes treasure where it's never been preached. There's, there's, there's a stewardship we have that's driven by a big view of God. And I hope chapters like this make the view bigger for you. Make make our view of God bigger so that it really changes and impacts how we think about our money and our use of our money because it's become, He's become what we need. So, fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom It's not be like those who worry about where it's going to come from, but who trust that God is faithful and He will supply. And let's be people who are about spreading our passion for the supremacy of God to all peoples. Let me pray for you. Father, as you expose our hearts today, I pray you would do that graciously in ways that help us move to to you in repentant faith, correcting our gaze on our all-satisfying God. And we pray that you would be for us our greatest treasure and that our lives would look like it. Father, that if an unbelieving world sees believers, that they would see among us hearts that aren't anxious like theirs, but hearts that know you are what we need most and our priorities are radically different because of it. I pray you'd make that true in us. fan into flames our view of your greatness and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.